Chapter Twenty of Foremothers at Chautauqua by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sing Peans Over the Past. They were right about Hazel. She had never before seen, never imagined a prettier sight than that procession led by one hundred little girls robed in white, wreathed in flowers, and with baskets of flowers in their tiny hands. They were so fascinating that for a time she had eyes only for them. Burnham had made a shortcut ahead of the main procession, which brought them presently within view of the Golden Gate and the evergreen arches. This was Hazel's first sight of them, and her questions came rapidly. Burnham Roberts, whose first act had been to find a seat for his mother within full view of the hall and with several of her friends, had returned to Hazel bristling with information. He had taken the utmost pains to make ready for those questions. Those are all members of the Shakespeare class. Notice the wild roses. Yes, all who wear that emblem. It's the class of 1912, you understand. They are the ones who are to pass through the Golden Gate, not around it. Yes, only they, with the exception of a few belated ones who, in the years gone by, did not reach here to go with their class. Only one passage through that gateway. So you see, it is a golden day in life's history. A little like a wedding day, isn't it? The marriage service standing for the entrance into a new name and home. Or like the gateway to heaven, Hazel said, her lips parted in eager delight and her cheeks aglow. We pass through that gateway but once, you know. He felt no disposition to laugh or to make a semi-sarcastic remark such as Eureka would surely have received had her spoken thoughts run in any such channel. It seemed an entirely simple and natural thing for this young girl to refer to that one event which by common consent had been tabooed in polite society as, not the gloomy and dreaded end of life, but the gateway to home. Was she different in this, as in everything else, from other girls? "'Oh, they are singing,' said Hazel. "'What is it? The tune is lovely.' As they sang, they marched. The multitude representing the class of 1912 passed through the golden gate with quick, triumphant tread, passed under the first and second arches, while the little flower-girls, massed on either side of the walk, literally lined their pathway with flowers. "'How lovely!' said Hazel again. "'How perfectly lovely! I wish I could hear the words that the choir is singing!' Her companion thrust a hand into some pocket and produced therefrom a printed program of the day's exercises, pointing to the song that was ringing through the flower-perfumed air. A song of today. Sing peans over the past. We bury the dead years tenderly to find them again in eternity, all safe in its circle vast. Sing peans over the past. Farewell, farewell to the old beneath the arches and one by one from sun to shade and from shade to sun we pass and the years are told farewell farewell to the old and hail all hail to the new the future lies like a world new-born all steeped in sunshine and mists of morn and arched with a cloudless blue all hail all hail to the new all things all things are yours the spoil of nations, the arts sublime, that arch the ages from oldest time, the word that forever a endures, all things, all things are yours. 
Arise and conquer the land. Not one shall fail in the march of life, not one shall fall in the hour of strife, who trusts in the Lord's right hand. Arise and conquer the land. The Lord shall sever the sea, and open a way in the wilderness, to faith that follows, to feet that press, on into the great to be. The Lord shall sever the sea. Burnham watched the girl as she read the words. They were moving forward with the crowds, keeping time instinctively to the music, but she read every word. "'Aren't they wonderful?' she said, as the last note of the song died away. "'I feel as though I had never before heard such words.' "'It is poetry, all right,' Burnham said. "'There are a number by the same writer in the book used here, copyrighted, you see, evidently written for the occasion, and all with the ring of true poetry.' Lathbury, read Hazel, referring to her program. M. A. Lathbury, I must remember that name. I want to read every line that writer ever wrote. The Lord shall sever the sea and open a way in the wilderness. I am afraid, Mr. Roberts, you will think me almost sacrilegious, but do you know I can't help feeling that that is just what he has done for me. You will not understand it, of course, but, oh, I was in the wilderness, and there didn't seem any way out. He must have done it. Burnham Roberts had no reply. Tears were shining in the eyes of the young enthusiast. He feared that she could not see his look of sympathy, but the words he wanted to speak he knew were not suited for that time and place. Watch the class filing into the hall, he said, trying to speak in a commonplace tone. See what a large representation they have here. They are from all over the country. I am told that there are twenty-five states represented by this one class. That means a pretty wide-reaching influence, doesn't it? Who are the ones who are already seated before the class arrived? Hazel questioned. They had reached the hall by that time, and were standing where they could command a full view. They are all members of the CLSC. Haven't you seen and heard those cabalistic letters everywhere for the last few days? They represent the one great reading circle of which all these people are members, the graduates of the years past and the would-be graduates of the years to come. Notice the class flowers, especially the pansies. That's the aggressive class this year, the 87s. That is their banner in the corner nearest you, the one with the pansy on it. They think it the handsomest banner here, and I'm not sure but they're right. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, read Hazel from the banner. Yes, that's their class motto. They certainly are not neglecting it this year. They are everywhere in evidence. It is an anniversary with them of, of what? 1887-1912. Why, the 25th, of course. Ah, that's the reason they are so aggressive. They even have a class breakfast tomorrow morning. Stebbins is in a flutter of preparation for it. He is my college friend I told you of, and it's his class. Do college men belong to these classes? Oh, yes, indeed, and college women, scores of them. Stebbins is enthusiastic over the whole thing. He says the books represent modern thought and scientific conclusions and all the rest of it in the best possible language, and besides being well worth reading for themselves, the scheme affords boundless opportunities for helping others. Stebbins is a great fellow for helping. 
Hazel was gazing about her while she questioned and listened, intently interested in everything. "'There is an army of people wearing oak leaves,' she said. "'No flower at all, just a leaf. What can that mean?' "'They are the undergraduates whose honors are yet to come. The 1913, you see, and all the rest of them. The class of 1916 is forming here this season. It is a four-years course, you understand.' You and I ought to join that class, Hazel, and go through the Golden Gate in four years from now, shall we? There was a heightened color on the girl's face. He had never before called her Hazel, but of course he would, now that she was in his mother's employ. She fell in promptly with what she believed to be his mood. I think so, she said gaily. I have already been made Queen Wilhelmina this morning, and Marjorie has arranged that this afternoon I am to be Tennyson's Maud. Fancy that little mouse knowing Tennyson's Maud. So you see, I am prepared to play anything today. There are my cousins wearing oak leaves. Indeed, said Burnham. Kindly point them out to me. Where are they sitting? They must have joined the class of 1916. Does that make you more or less willing to do so? I mean, are your cousins as pronounced in their views as your aunt seems to be? Hazel was glad that she need make no reply. She was not sure just how she felt toward her cousins. Now that she was away from them, she realized more than she had before that they had tried to be kind, that often her own dreariness had pushed from herself little kindnesses that they were ready to offer, and that even her aunt had perhaps been more often solicitous for her real good than she had received credit for being. The question that was beginning to haunt Hazel was, could she cultivate a different feeling for these her only relatives, a feeling that would last when that sorrowful day arrived in which she must return to them? Of course Mr. Roberts could not understand any of this, and must not hear about it. She was glad that the great assembly had again burst into song. Burnham, in answer to her questioning eyes, quietly pointed out the words on the program. A sound is thrilling through the trees, and vibrant through the air. Ten thousand hearts turn hitherward, and greet us from afar. And through the happy tide of song that blends our hearts in one, the voices of the absent flow in tender undertone. Fair wisdom builds her temple here, her seven-pillared dome, Toward all the lands she spreads her hands and greets her children home. Not all may gather at her shrine to sing of victories won. Their names are graven on her walls. God bless them every one. Hazel's eyes were shining through a mist of tears. It is all so beautiful, she said, responding to her companion's sympathetic and inquiring glance. It must come home to the hearts of so many hungry people. They are middle-aged a good many of them. They are having things that they missed in their youth. Besides, there must be people at home, perhaps older than these, who are parts of the same circle, and included in the prayer, God bless them, every one. Don't you think that this touching poem is very nearly the most beautiful thing that the bishop has done in his long, beautiful life? It was much the same thought that Eureka had expressed but a short time before, when Burnham Roberts had listened with an amused smile and a disposition to rally her upon her streak of sentimentality. He felt no such desire now. On the contrary, it seemed to him a happy and expressive way of voicing his own feeling. 
There was no time for response. The bishop was speaking. Members of the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle, representatives of the class of 1912, dearly beloved, you have finished the appointed course of reading, you have been admitted to the grove, you have passed under the arches dedicated to history, literature, science, and faith, you have been admitted to the hall in the grove, and now, as Chancellor of the Chautauqua Institution, I greet you and announce that you are approved graduates of the CLSC and entitled to membership in the Society of the Hall in the Grove. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Following this official recognition came the CLSC flag with its painting of the hall as it was in the early days, and its Chautauqua emblems, the open Bible and the cross of Christ. During the giving of certain class notices, Burnham Roberts fell to whispering. That man who described the flag and explained the tablets has been here ever since there was a Chautauqua. My mother met him here, when she and her three friends came as girls. You know which ones I mean, do you not? We call them the four girls. They had some unique experiences here, and some impressions were made that have lasted. This man was one of the teachers and lecturers at that time. My mother remembers him perfectly. Some of his teachings she says she is living by. They must have been wonderful teachings, murmured Hazel. The feeling that she had for this young man's mother she could not have put into words. And here he is teaching yet, she added. He looks and speaks as though this class might expect him to attend their twenty-fifth anniversary. He is Dr. Jesse Lyman Hurlbut, explained Burnham in his capacity of general informer. Oh, I know him, whispered back his audience. I shall remember him forever. One night, only a few weeks ago, but it seems like ages, I was passing this very hall, and this man was talking. I was, oh, so miserable, and do you know, his voice reached me just in time. He will never know it here, but I shall tell him about it some day when I meet him in heaven, what he saved me from that night. Then they had to listen again, for the bishop was dedicating the class tablets. This mosaic tablet, as a memorial of the class of 1912, we hereby place in this hall as a part of its lasting pavement, and as a feature of its decoration. May they whose feet tread this pavement stand firmly on the rock of ages, and dwell forever within the walls of the eternal city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He never forgets the foundation, Hazel said, and her companion, whose natural tendency it would have been to ask in cynical tones, What foundation? had no reply to make. This simple, sincere girl seemed to take earnestness for granted. They were moving now, with the throngs, in the direction of the amphitheater, and Mrs. Roberts having been carried off with Aunt Ruth in Erskine Burnham's carriage, the young man was able to give undivided attention to his companion. But he had no words to speak. There was a tender light in the girl's eyes, and an assured something on her face that held him silent and puzzled. Why had those few words of dedication so moved her? Was she so constituted that any reference to a future unknown world, couched in beautiful language, set her heart a throb with something that seemed like both hope and desire? 
He felt that he wanted to make this world such a happy place for her that there would be no room in her heart for that other one. But he had a miserable feeling that he should fail. She interrupted his thoughts. She had not even noticed his silence. "'Isn't it a blessed thing,' she said earnestly, that a place like Chautauqua was developed and is being sustained by a man whose feet are set firmly on that rock of ages. It might so easily have developed into a mere place of amusement, or into a mere gathering of scholars for literary and scientific studies. But he went deeper and planted it on the only lasting rock. I am so glad. He tried to smile at her enthusiasm and to rally her. You use that word mere in rather startling connections. A mere gathering of scholars. There are multitudes, you know, who consider that the great foundation. And there are those who contend that Chautauqua today stands for just that, with a little taffy interspersed in the way of amusement. But it is not true, she said earnestly. You and I know that it is not. Everyone who has been here this year knows better. That open Bible on the banner and that cross of Christ are its foundation stones, and I am glad, glad. Burnham Roberts took his seat beside her in the amphitheatre, uncomfortably conscious that she knew on what rock her feet were planted, and that a great gulf separated them. End of chapter 20